All right, everybody, welcome back. I, uh, I hope everyone had a great Christmas uh, and however you were able to celebrate this year. I know it's been, it's been a difficult time and, and it's been different. Um, we need to be continuing to pray uh, for our community, for our church, as people we're seeing more and more as uh, people are getting exposed or have contracted COVID-19 and just to be praying that uh, we would uh, just God would be working in their lives and healing. And so it, it has been a different Christmas season and, and actually uh, having the, the Christmas spirit has just been such a difficult thing to kind of do. And, and today what I want to do is explore something we've talked about in the past, that maybe, maybe dig a little deeper. You know, we're at that point, this is one of those times for me where it's like we, we, we know biblical things and now it's taking those things and applying them to our lives. You know, this, this actually is what biblical meditation is, is taking what I know God has said and applying it to my life in real world conditions. And so I want to talk about that because there is this interesting dynamic in our lives that deals with how we feel. It deals with our heart. It deals with how we live. And we call them moods. And they're often a very important part of our walk with Christ, even though we don't think of them as being together. And so I, I, as we're talking about, I put here, letting the King change us. And I want to just give you a quick little definition. Now, this is, not a, this is not a definition you'll necessarily find anywhere. This is kind of what I came up with. A mood is a pervasive tendency to feel a certain way. And, and, it, and it pervades us. It overwhelms us at times. We, we can struggle with that. We have lots of of moods. Some moods are good. Some moods are bad. They tend to be one or the other in that area. And, and uh, I was thinking about this because I came across the other day about a, a study that was done on what was the most often, uh, uh, most asked question for an administrative assistant of, of a CEO of a country or a company or a big boss. And the question most asked of the boss's administrative assistant was this, what kind of mood is the boss in today? Because if he's in a good mood, this is going to be good. I'll, you know, it'll, it'll be, I'll be grateful. He'll be generous. If he's in a bad mood, he'll be negative, irritated, or she will be negative, irritated, stressed, or frustrated. And so it's weird how these things affect us. Because when we're in a good mood, we tend to be happier. We tend, the world looks better. The future looks brighter. Other people look better to you and, and, and seem to be nicer. Your job, your school, your home seems a more pleasant place, a more enjoyable place to be. And when you're in a good mood, that's how things look. And when you're in a good mood, a sermon seems better to you. So when you're in a bad mood, a sermon can be long and tedious and intrusive. I hope you guys are in good moods today. I really do. That's important for me. But in this life that we live, in this world that we're in, we just have one shot at this. And so how are you going to go through life? What kind of mood are you going to allow to dominate your life? Do you want to change? I have met people who just live in this kind of a chronic, low-level irritation, negative mood, and they allow it to dominate them, and it affects those around them. I had a friend growing up when I was in high school, and then we were friends in college and even afterwards, and I would go to his house, and his mother was this bright, pleasant woman, and his father was just always grumpy, and he was always just kind of uh, not in a great mood, not necessarily mean or anything, just kind of short and grumpy, and, and, uh, and I noticed with my friend, he talked in glowing terms of his mother, and he rarely talked about his father. Because these things can affect us. Moody people have less friends, less intimacy. They have less love and close relationships. Moody people are less generous. They're more self-absorbed. 
Now, we have to be careful about correlating our walk with God with our mood because being happy doesn't equal being close to God. And being unhappy doesn't mean you're far from God. So we have to be careful about that. Because even a grumpy person can be really happy if they win the lottery. But it doesn't change them. They still can be a grumpy, negative person. But I do think God wants us to be people who are, generally speaking, good moves. There's going to be ups and downs, and that's, that's going to happen. But I mean, when we talk about this, we studied this quite a while ago. We studied uh, the book of Galatians, and we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and for those that can remember that far back, the fruit is a singular word. It means one fruit. And so it's not all these different, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And what is this idea is almost like a gym when you hold it up and it's a multifaceted thing. Uh, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is all these things wrapped together in one. In Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so this is what Paul, he teaches us, this is what we're to be about. If we're to be people who walk with the Spirit, and that brings in this idea of the Spirit, and how key that is in our walk with God. Because we just can't do it on our own. But when we walk with God and the Spirit's in control, these fruit begin to work. This fruit begins to work its way out in our life. This love and this forbearance. And people who are loving people, who are joyful people, who are peaceful people, who uh, forbear, especially in dealing with people who have wronged them, have kindness, goodness, they're faithful, they're gentle, they have self-control. These are generally people who we would say are, are in a good mood. And when, and when they are, it's contagious. It's ca it catches. It can be good for other people when you're in a good mood. It, it brings them up. But it can be the other way also. Because a negative mood can bring people down. Nobody wants to be around a person who, who, who bitterly sings joy to the world. You know? It just feels like life is terrible and and I hope you're all happy, you weirdos, and just, just has this negative attitude, it pulls us down. But following Jesus is about something different than just wanting to be in a good mood. Because life is hard. And God wants to impact. He wants to change everything about you, including your moods. Jesus actually came to impact the world, including moods. And we see this. I mean, we see how this plays out in the very familiar Christmas story. We see the Magi, and they saw the star. And when they saw the star, it says in Matthew 2.10, they were overjoyed. We see with the shepherds, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Glorifying and praising God. We see how, how that affected them. We see with the angels, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, uh, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. And so we see these different groups, shepherds and magi and angels, they're affected by Jesus. And it brings great joy. You think about Mary. You know, Mary, who could have been in a, in a, very, in a, in a very negative mood. This, this was not great news to begin with. It was news of how her life was going to be turned upside down. Everything Mary dreamed of as a young girl disappeared when the angel came and told her about Jesus. Everything she hoped for, a respectable life in a community, gone. You know, her marriage, looking at it, humanly speaking, it's got to be gone. 
she's going to be pregnant, not by her husband. And so it's, her life is going to be turned upside down. And yet we see after a couple of chapters, she writes what is called the Magnificat, which is a very prayerful hymn meant to be sung with themes of rejoicing, themes of worship, themes of the great mercy of God. Because that's what Jesus does to people. Or for some people, they push back, they rebel against it. Herod the king. I mean, basically what the Magi said, they said, dude, we found your replacement. That's what they said when they came to see him. Where's this king that has been born? And he took this seriously. Because we know from the history of Herod that he was always worried about usurpers. He was terrible how he dealt with his family. Oftentimes he killed a number of his children and a number of his wives because he kept suspecting them of wanting to take away his throne. And Herod had this negative outlook on everything. It dominated him. And we can struggle with that sometimes. We struggle with the fact that my mood is basically the product of whatever circumstances I live in. Whatever circumstances I happen to find myself in tend to dominate our moods. If I have good circumstances, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm doing well at work, I'm making good money, maybe I got a good grade on a test, maybe somebody praises me, maybe somebody likes what I'm doing, then I'm in a good mood. If I'm in bad circumstances, something bad happens, I flunk a test, I face criticism, then I'm in a bad mood. Because we can just kind of go through our days. I can kind of go through my days, wake up in neutral and expect and hope that this will be a good day for me. It will bring good circumstances. And if it does, I'm in a good mood. And if it doesn't, I'm in a bad mood. And I can go through life just like every other moody person with all the trouble that moody people can have. You know, I was thinking about this. If you, had, if you could have a lot of power and a lot of money and the ability to alter your circumstances, it ought to make you happy. Because most of us will live that way. We try to alter our circumstances so we feel happy and we're in a good mood. But you know, when you think about it, if that was true, Herod should have been the happiest guy on earth. That's what he had. Power and money, and the ability to change his circumstances. He could do that, but he was a miserable train wreck. And by contrast, here's this young girl named Mary, and she receives what at first glance was not great news. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, the words of the angel, and wondered what kind of greeting this must be. She was struggling with it. It tells us she had turmoil in her soul over this greeting of this angel because the first thing she thought of is, how is this going to affect the rest of my life? And so she, she begins to question, she says, how can this be? Her point seems to be, I don't want this to be. How can this be? This can't happen. And yet, not long after that, it says Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And he uses those two words. And I've thought about this before, treasured and pondered. Really important words for us to understand. Because everything is going on around here, this very act, active, and Mary tends to, seems to be slowing down and thinking. To ponder means you think about it really deeply. You reflect on it. Um, she would, she would uh, take a look at what's going on in her life in light of what the Bible says. She would talk about, talk to God about it, trying to discern what's going on. 
some people think that phrase is kind of like a Hallmark card kind of a moment. You know, she 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 pondered and and like herbal tea and just sit back and savor it all and enjoy a good movie. But it's not. It's language that was used for the Old Testament prophets. These men and women who tried to discern what God was doing. God would give them a message and they would think, how does this work? How can this work? And they worked with it and struggled with it and thought it through and prayed it over. And that's what she does. She pondered and then she treasured. Treasures mean you find great value in these thoughts. You delight in them. You savor them. You turn them over and over in your mind and they move you to worship. Because we see what happened. Mary, at the very beginning, she was greatly troubled at these words. And then what does she do? She says, your will, not my will, Lord. As your servant, I will do this. But that's not, that's not like she's going, yes. But then what happens? As she treasures, as she ponders, we get down and, and a little later, we have the Magnificat where she says, my soul greatly praises the Lord. I rejoice at His mercy. She talks about this great salvation that's coming, the promise of salvation that God gave to Israel. What does that mean? That means in her pondering, she went back to the Word. And she says, hold on. Throughout the Old Testament, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. There's a Savior coming. This is it. She, she, she treasured, she pondered, and she worked it through, and then she rejoiced. And so Mary does that. You know, this Christmas we gave, I have five kids, we gave our five kids a, a, a special gift. We gave them each a photo album of their life. We went through our pictures. I don't know if you've ever gone through all your pictures as you've gotten older. And it's, it's thousands and thousands, like tens of, it's just an unbelievable amount of pictures. And it was this, my wife had this great idea. We would give them this album of their life. And I thought, that's a great idea. And then when we were about a third the way into it, I said, this is the worst idea in the world. This is so much work going through all these things, but there was one thing the whole time. I was going back through the lives of my kids and thinking how thankful I was for them. How thankful to God I was for the privilege of being a father to these five adults now. And that He let me do that. And, and uh, it, was, it was turned out to be a great thing in spite of all the hard work. And it moved me to thank God for my kids even more than I do. As a general rule, whatever's going on in your life, your mood will tend to reflect what you, like Mary, ponder and treasure. It could be your money. It could be your grades. It could be your looks. It could be your health. It could be success. It could be that God is with you and is present in your life through Jesus and the Spirit, and He loves you. What we treasure and ponder affect us greatly. So I want to give you five practical ideas on this idea of treasuring and pondering, this idea, practical applications of the Christmas story, and we see how it affected people. How can it affect me? So how can it affect my whole person, my heart, my moods? How can that be guided by God now? And, and I want to say, I mentioned this, but I want to say it again. The key behind all of this is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who empowers us because we cannot do it on our own. We, we have these ideas, these five, and they would be nothing more than good advice apart from the Holy Spirit of God. But the Holy Spirit of God can empower you to make this happen. And so the first thing I want you to think about is each morning ask Jesus to set your mood. 
Now, I, I, see, I know that can be kind of trite, you know, like, oh, Jesus, help me be happy today. It's not that. It's each morning when you get up saying, God, I want to start in the right frame of mind. You know, there's some people who are morning people. They love getting up in the morning, okay? I mean, there's people who are like that. And then there's the other people. And these are the people that hate the people that love getting up in the morning. But we all have to get up. And we actually say, you know, it's, it's funny, I'm, I don't always love getting up in the morning, but we, we say to some people if they're really grumpy, because I've said this before too, you must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. And I don't know where that came from, because which side is the wrong side, right? I mean, it could be important to know. I got news. There is a sleep disorder scholar. His name is Neil Robinson. He did a study in 2016 of thousands of subjects and actually found out there's a correct side of the bed to get up on. He found out if you get up on the left side of the bed, you are between 4 and 10% more likely to be in a better mood, to be a friendlier person, to enjoy your job, to enjoy school more than if you got up on the right side of the bed. See, good things. You can learn good things here. I knew this for a while, and that's why I insist that my wife always get up on the left side of the bed. Servant's heart right there, right? But here's the idea of asking, each morning asking Jesus to set your mood. When you get up tomorrow, you can do this. You can forget about whether you get up on the right side or the left side. Four to ten percent is not that big of a deviation. But if you get up and you make a commitment, and your first thought is, okay, God, I want this day to be yours. Your first thought is not this. Oh, all the stuff I have to do. All the problems I have to solve. All the questions I have to answer. The emails I have to follow up on. The texts I have to send. But your first thought is you stop. And you wake up. And instead of anxiously thinking things through, you recognize something. This is the day the Lord has made. This is God's day. And God will be with me through it. <clears throat> It's all in God's hands. This day is a fresh day created by Him. There's a fabulous statement in the Old Testament where the writer says this, God, your mercies are new every morning. I love that idea, that His mercies are new every morning. It's not like God's got this giant reserve of, of mercies that He just doles out. You know, I've, uh, this is, I've got this huge... It's, it's almost like at night while you're sleeping, God's whipping up a new batch of mercies just for you for the morning. He loves doing that. And this Christmas, you know, I was thinking about this. This Christmas has been so weird for us. Our whole family couldn't get together. And Christmas Eve, I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, this isn't so bad because I don't have to wrap a ton of presents on Christmas Eve. I don't have to wrap and stuff all those stockings. You know, when you have five kids and three are married and you got grandkids, it comes out to be a lot of presents and a lot of stockings and, and a lot of work. And that can get kind of old. And I was, I was just thinking, man, I'm so tired of wrapping stuff. This is, this is kind of great. But then I started thinking, man, that, but the reason I'm not wrapping stuff is because I'm not going to see some of them. That's terrible. And strangely, you know, we can get tired even of things that are actually important. They can wear us out. We get tired of things. Do you understand? God never gets tired of being God. He never gets tired of whipping up a batch of new mercies. When he faces every day, God is never bored. We kind of get into this, for us, this cramped way of living that is so different from God. 
we get molded into this. We see those who don't fit, oftentimes maybe like children don't fit that mold, or saints, or poets, or people like that. Um, there's a great writer named G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a fabulous passage about how God is like a child in this way. And I, and I want to read it to you. I know it's a long passage, but, but hang in there because, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's almost nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. Grown-up people are not strong enough to exult, to enjoy, to celebrate monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making daisies. It may be that He has the the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. I love that last line, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. We've sinned. Sin is not good. Sin does not bring life. We have sinned and grown old. So tomorrow morning, maybe you should try to wake up and say, God, do it again. Bring the sun up again. Bring those same people that I see every day at work. Bring them back into my life. Give me another shot at them. Let me love them. Give me one more chance, God, to impact their lives for your glory for your good. Give me moments where I can be so glad to be in this world with you, God. God, heal me from sinning and growing old. Think about that. Think about waking up in that way. Basically saying, Jesus set my mood. I don't want to start this day in neutral. I don't want to let my circumstances set my day. Give me one more chance and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. So each morning, ask Jesus to set your mood. The second thing is, be intensely curious about Jesus. I wasn't sure how to write this, but I just wanted to get that idea of being intensely curious about Jesus. Because it staggers me sometimes that we can study together, sing together, talk to God together, and it becomes old hat. It's that been there, there, done that idea. I know the all, I know all the Christmas stories. I know the angels. I know the shepherds. I know all that stuff. And we miss, we miss the immensity of what we're doing. This morning is, is, is another, we did this before earlier in the year. It's one of those weird times. There's nobody here. I mean, Jose's in the back. Mitch is in the back. There's nobody else here. Just me talking to an empty room. And then when they were singing, we were just singing to an empty room. And I was in the back. I was in the back worshiping, and, and, and it hit me. I can lose sight of the immensity of what we're doing, especially around Christmas times. Everybody knows the Christmas stories. They've heard all the sermons. But when we look at these people that we've talked about in, in the Christmas stories, the problem is we tend to think, well, yeah, you know, it was easy for them. We live in the day of science. We live in the modern age. 
That was all pretty, probably pretty easy for them. Easy for them to believe, you know. Easy to believe for Mary when the angel came and said, Blessed are you, favored among women. You know, God is going to come and He's going to be with you. God's going to give you a child. But her response was not easy. It was not easy belief. See, I think we lose sight of the fact that they had their own barriers to faith, just like we have our barriers to faith. Here was Mary. She was brought up as a young Jewish woman to believe that God was one and God could never, ever occupy a human body. God can never be in the flesh. That's why we have the second, you know, that she, that, that's why they took the second command, never make an image of God. So this idea that God was going to come to earth in human form and for, for, and for all of us is, is just so staggering to her. And it should be to us. It's a wonder. Being intensely curious means nothing's off the table. And I really, I really mean this. Whatever is troubling me, whatever is troubling you, whatever I find difficult to understand, whatever is back there in the recesses of my mind that I don't want to have to deal with about Jesus and His Word, those things that when I really think about them, they make me feel like uneasy and, 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 and it's a struggle. And that's the whole idea, you know, a lot of people struggle with the virgin birth. And I'm telling you, I would much rather have someone who's thoughtful and honest and is skeptical about it than just someone who's passive and mindless and they are just drifting along, singing songs they don't even think about what they mean. We sing these songs with these amazing words at Christmas time, veiled in flesh the God's head see, hail the incarnate deity. God loves you so much that He came to earth to be one with you. To live in a body like yours, a body like mine. To know what it is to grow, to experience pain, to be sad, to be hungry, to be tired, to be betrayed, to be unloved, to be betrayed by those who love you the most. He wants us to deal with that. He wants us to think, God, how can this be? How well must you know me? What does it mean that I have a body? How can I find you now? How can I know you? We've got to be intensely curious about Jesus. We've got to understand. I mean, you know, it's, it, we always talk about this. It starts with a simple but very profound thing, recognizing that I'm a sinner, that I need a Savior, and that Jesus came. He lived, He died, and He was raised from the dead for me. The implications of that are staggering. And so when we get in intensely curious about this stuff, it's good for us. It's good for us to read our Bible. Read the story of the Incarnation. And when you sing Christmas carols, you sing those words, you say, do I really believe this? Because we want to be that kind of a church where, where we prioritize the idea of worshiping God, especially with our minds, our intellect, our understanding, challenging ourselves and dealing with those issues. Dealing with the things that we feel a little bit weird about and we can't really, don't want to talk to anybody about because they, they maybe shake us a little bit at our foundation and we worry about that. We want to be the kind of church where that's fine. You can talk about that stuff. Because when you care about somebody, you're curious about them. You think about them. I want to think about God. I want to be curious about Jesus. I want to think about what we believe and understand the immensity of what we're talking about. And I want to say also, if you're sitting there and you go, you know, you're, 
Bob, I understand what you're saying there. I'd love to talk to you about it. We have resources that we'd love to give you to help you work through some of these difficult issues because there are answers to them. There are answers. So, each morning, ask Jesus to set your mood. Be intensely curious about Jesus. Third one is cultivate gratitude. Cultivate gratitude. When, uh, when I was a young kid, my middle brother Steve, um, I think it was Christmas, might have been his birthday, whatever, he, he, got a, um, he asked for a, uh, a science kit, very specific science kit. And when we opened up our presents, he got a different one, not the one he asked for. And his first thought was, this isn't the one I wanted. And I can remember my dad saying, well, son, you know what? That's what we got you. And it's a science kit. You should be able to have a great time. But it's not the one I wanted. It's not the right one. And my dad said, okay. And he picked it up and he said, you get nothing. And he put it away. And then my brother, oh, no, no, no. And it was too late. It was too late. He'd angered the gods. And then... To help him learn the lesson, and me and my older brother, a few weeks later, one of his best friends had a birthday party, and my parents wrapped that gift up and said, go give this science kit to your friend for his birthday. I can remember telling my children that when they were little. Be careful how you react on Christmas morning and on your birthday, because this is what happened to your Uncle Steve, and I'm not above doing that myself. And so every once in a while, just every few years, just, just tell that little story to my kids so they would remember. And, and I remember one time on a, on, a, uh, on a birthday, one of my kids going, oh, kind of, mm, not sure. And all I, heard was, all I heard was one of my daughters leaning over, remember Uncle Steve. I said, remember Uncle Steve? I said, oh, I love it, you know, <laughs> lie. But here's the thing. We have to cultivate gratitude. It has to be something we work at because we tend to not feel that way naturally. Because it, it's this weird thing. If somebody gives me something and it's a surprise, I tend to be really grateful for it. But if they give it to me every day of the week, you would think I'd be seven times more grateful, but I'm not. I get used to it. I start taking it for granted. If it happens every day of the year, I begin to feel entitled to it. I feel like you violated my rights if I don't get it. Now, what does this say about my relationship with God? Because God gives me more gifts than I can count every day, day after day, week after week, year after year. And I start to treat some of these things like I deserve it. It's my right. G.K. Chesterton, another great line from him, he said, When we were children, we were grateful for those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? He was saying, Why aren't we grateful for the simple things that we take for granted every day? How come I don't wake up in the morning and say, Thank you, God, that my feet work and my hands work? Thank you, God, that I can see. How come I don't do that? Because I take it for granted. I feel I'm entitled to it. And when with a grateful heart, I can stand, get out of bed and say, God, thank you. You've done it again. You've given me a gift. My body, this, this air I'm breathing, every lung full of air, every, every friendly face. You've given me your son. Now, what can I give? How can I be a giver like you, Lord? How can I be a person who's outward focused, open hands to people, giving, loving, serving, Cultivate gratitude in your life. It will alter 
the aspect, so many aspects of your life. So each morning, ask Jesus to set your mood. Be intensely curious about Jesus. Cultivate gratitude. Worship Jesus in your problems. And this is very difficult. You know, in the first Christmas, there were problems for everybody. There were problems for Joseph. It looked like his wife had cheated on him. His alternatives all were bad alternatives. It would, it would be a scar that he would live with the rest of his life. There were problems for Mary along those same lines. <clears throat> and we've talked about this before. We, there are hints in the New Testament of the times this was all thrown back in her face where she was accused of having a child who was half-breed. And Jesus heard them too. There were problems for Jesus. There were problems for the family. And later in life, Jesus' brother James would write, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now that's an interesting statement. He says there is joy, not just joy, there's pure joy. So it's a certain kind of joy. It's just not that flippant, happy th kind of a thing. It's something that's deep and settled inside. And that joy can be had. He says, consider it. He says, you got to work on this. Consider it joy. Look at it this way. When you have difficulties. Because you know those difficulties are growing you and shaping you and molding you to be more like Jesus. Now, I'm awful at this. Even... Earlier this week, the week before, I was dealing with a very difficult issue, and it was really bugging me, and I kept finding myself getting frustrated and angry and, 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 uh, and I, I thinking about this, having joy in difficult times, but my mind kept focusing on the difficulty. And, and I felt like at some point, I was in my office, and I was studying, and I just felt like God was speaking to me, and I know that it's, you know, that's a... But it was just like, you know, Bob, are you having a difficult time? I'm like, Yes! You can consider this pure joy. And I remember thinking, how can, I, how can I have joy when I'm struggling like this? I'm in this difficult situation, and I'm under the gun to get this message about joy out, and it's just not easy, and I'm struggling with it. Not missing the fact, the irony, that I'm struggling with a message on joy and not feeling any joy in it. And now it just hit me that, Bob, this is not the problem. You're the problem. It's like God was telling me, I'm teaching you. I'm involved in your life. That could, should cause you joy to think about. The king of the universe has decided to become personally involved in my life. I should be overjoyed thinking about that. When I, when I think about it, I see the joy that should be there the joy of knowing that God is intimately involved in my life, and that can give me a different perspective on my problems. And God has taught me this a number of times. He's worked on me to understand how He's working in different ways and how He can things can come out of the blue. Um, about two or three weeks ago, one of the homeless guys that we've ministered to in the past, and I still see occasionally, um, um, he, he showed up at the door, and I started to we started to talk some, and. Uh, and he'd been drinking too much, and uh, so he was just talking, and the conversation was wandering all over the place and nonsense um, so much of the time. And so I thought, okay, I, I, this is crazy. I need to tell him he needs to go. And, and it's, I just felt a prompting from the Lord. It was like God was saying, just, just wait. Just go a few more minutes. 
So we talked for another minute or two, and then he looked at me, and he just said, you should be the most thankful person on the whole earth. And I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, I said, so why, Mark? Why? He said, God is using you. What a privilege that is. You don't understand how thankful you should be that God is working in your life. And I, I looked and I said, you're right. You're right. And inside I said, God, thank you for telling me to wait a minute because you're talking to me through this guy. Now, how God talks through drunk people, I don't know. <laughs> they talk a lot before you can discern anything. But he said something to me. He said something for us. God is working in your life. This should be a cause of great thankfulness and joy. Because this week, next week, the past week, we've all had problems, and you will have more problems, I promise. We just had Christmas. Here comes New Year's. You won't have enough time. You won't have enough money. You won't have enough energy. At Christmas, there was probably somebody that was not at the table with you because you wished they could be there, but they couldn't make it. And there may have been somebody there you wish they couldn't have made it. You'd rather they weren't at the table with you. we got these things happening. But we will, all, we will all run into one problem or another. And so this week, you can say, I can say, I'm going to worship God in my problem. And when the problems come, I'm going to look at it and say, this is the path to joy. There is joy in this problem. Now, that is a really counterintuitive thing to do. But we have a God who says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher. They're greater. God is counterintuitive. He does things that are counterintuitive. And so he's telling us, and James telling us, consider it. Think it through. Make it so. This is joy because I'm in, I'm, something is happening in my life. God is involved. I'm going to worship God in my problem. It won't make the problem go away. But what it does is when we frame our mind in light of eternal things, they take their proper place in our life. And we begin to see the good that can come out of them. Now, this is not fooling ourselves into believing something. Because I understand there will be problems and tragedies that we may struggle with for the rest of our lives. We may not see the good that came out of them till the other side of eternity. But there will be good. We will be shaped, we will be changed into things in ways that we never have been changed before and to things that we've never been changed into before that we have to. We need it in our lives. And so we worship Jesus in our problems. The, each morning, ask Jesus to set your mood. Be intensely curious about Jesus. Cultivate gratitude. Worship Jesus in your problems and then spread the word. You know, when Jesus came, when somebody actually gets confronted with the reality of Jesus, they have to tell people. It just spills out of them. The shepherds, they spread the word. Uh, we have the story of Anna in the temple, and she, and she suddenly saw Jesus, and she spoke to everyone she saw after that. It says about the child, about the redemption of Israel that has come. Now, that means we have to be outward focused. During this time, especially with COVID, 
We are, we are being pushed and driven towards being inward focused. What is, what is best for me? What is safe for me? What is, what is best for my family? What is safe for my family? And it's not wrong, but we have to understand that that's not what we're here for. We need to think of others. When I talk to other people about God in ways that are appropriate, and I ask God, God, would you lead me? Would you help me have a spiritual conversation with this person? Help me to encourage this person. Help me to tell this person something that they need to hear. Maybe just say, I'd love to pray for you. If you, if you don't mind, can I be praying for you? Just things like that where we spread the word. And maybe it's even in the near future as we get, begin to meet back together again, saying to somebody, you know, there's this church that I go to. And it's not like most churches I've been to. It's a church that says everybody's welcome. It's a church that says nobody's perfect. It's a church that says anything can happen. When God's involved, anything can happen. And when we do that, when I do that, when you do that, what happens is God becomes more alive to us. We sense His presence more. We become more thankful. We become more open to what He's doing as we spread to people the good news of Jesus Christ. When we tell people there's nobody that God doesn't love. God is always in a good mood. But Jesus said something that, that particularly produces joy in heaven. Jesus said, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's rejoicing. I used to think that was the angels rejoicing, but it says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Well, who's that? I believe that's God. He rejoices over one. That's the idea that we can impact people for eternity. We can have an impact on people's lives that will last forever. There's nothing greater to do with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you where the word leads us. We look at your word. We see the story of Jesus. We see what Jesus did. We see him coming as a child, and that gives us implications. That gives us things to ponder and treasure in our hearts. It leads us to practical ideas to follow you more closely, to serve you better, to love you more, to know you better. And Lord, as we do that, then we experience the joy that, that overrules everything else. The joy that can be even in the midst of difficulties. Father, we all want that. Help us to taste it and to want it even more. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank everybody for listening in. I'm just letting you know also we are getting ready to start our fundraising for um, um, the uh, CareNet, which we work with and support and uh, we have baby bottles. We did this last year. The baby bottles have arrived, and people can start gathering up their change, getting their change ready. I mean, they'll take big bills. They'll take checks. There's not a problem with that. But uh, then in the next few weeks, we'll start working on distributing baby bottles to those that want them and uh, then gathering back up after they've been filled and getting them over to help fund this uh, ministry that is a powerful ministry for good in our community. So be praying and thinking about that in this, at this holiday time, this season. And I hope you will, uh, you will be able to help and contribute in that area. Thanks for coming. God bless you.
you're dismissed. 